to use Roger Brown's phrase. We perceive the cat, for example, and infer the species that contains the cat or the subtype that makes it Siamese. Our basic level categories generally occupy the middle of our conceptual hierarchies. We generalize when we move up and specialize when we move down. Number three. They may be used in metonymic or reference point reasoning. Metonymic reasoning is symbolic in the psychoanalytic or literary sense. Metonymic means interchangeable and more. The fact that objects in a cognitive model have metonymic properties means that any or all of those objects can stand for any or all of the others. This capacity makes sense since all of the objects in a given category are by definition regarded as equivalent in some non-trivial sense, most generally in terms of implication for action. The human capacity for metaphor, aesthetic appreciation, and illusion seems integrally related to the capacity for metonymic reasoning and the use of richly meaningful cognitive models. Number four. They are characterized by membership, and centrality gradients. Membership gradients implies degree of membership, which is to say that an ostrich, for example, is a bird, but perhaps not so much of a bird as a robin, because the robin has more properties that are central to the category bird. A thing can be a better or worse exemplar of its category. If it is worse, it can still be placed within that category. Number five, they contain phenomena associated as a consequence of familial resemblance, a term used first in this context by Ludwig Wittgenstein. Things with familial resemblance all share similarities with a potentially hypothetical object. The prototypical Smith brother, to use a famous example, may have a dark mustache, beady eyes, balding pate, thick, horn-rimmed glasses, dark beard, skinny neck, large ears, and weak chin. Perhaps there are six Smith brothers in total, none of whom has all the properties of the prototypical Smith. Morgan Smith has a weak chin, large ears, balding pate, and skinny neck, but no glasses, mustache, or beard. Terry, by contrast, has the glasses, mustache, and beard, but a full head of hair, small ears, and a normal neck. Nelson has a receding hairline, beady eyes, and a dark beard and mustache, and so on for Lance, Randy, and Lyle. None of the brothers precisely resembles another, but if you saw them in a group, you would say, those men are all related. Number six. They give rise to the phenomenon of polysemy, a defining characteristic of myth. A polysemic story is written and can be read validly on many levels. The phenomenon of polysemy, discussed in some detail later in this book, arises when the relationship of objects within a particular cognitive model is analogous in some sense to the relationship that obtains between cognitive models. Great works of literature are always polysemic in this manner. The characters within the story stand in the same relationship to one another as things of more general significance stand to one another in the broader world. The struggle of Moses against the Egyptian pharaoh, for example, 
to take a story we will consider later, can also be read as an allegory of the struggle of the oppressed against the oppressor, or, even more generally, as the rebellion of the world-destroying, flooding savior against society. To say that two separable things belong to the same category is a tricky business. We presume, without thinking, that we group things as a consequence of something about them rather than as a consequence of something about us. What do all chairs share in common, then? Any given chair may lack some of the most common chair attributes, such as legs, backs, or armrests. Is a tree stump a chair? Yes, if you can sit on it. It isn't really something about an object considered as an independent thing that makes it a chair. It is, rather, something about its potential for interaction with us. The category chair contains objects that serve a function we value. Chairs may be efficiently sat upon, at least potentially. Our action in the face of an object constitutes an elementary but fundamental form of classification, constitutes, in fact, the most fundamental of all classifications, the classification from which all abstracted divisions are derived. The category of all things that make you want to run away when you look at them might be considered, for example, a very basic form of construct. Closely related to this category, although slightly higher in the hierarchy of abstraction, might be the category of all objects to be feared, or all objects that are dangerous when approached in one fashion, but beneficial when approached in another. It is a meaningful but irrational classification scheme of this sort that Jung described as a complex, one of the constituent elements of the collective unconscious. A complex is, in part, a group of phenomena, linked together because of shared significance, which is, essentially, implication for action or emotional equivalence. Jung believed that many complexes had an archetypal or universal basis, rooted in biology, and that this rooting had something specifically to do with memory. It appears that the truth is somewhat more complicated. We classify things according to the way they appear, the way they act, and in accordance with their significance to us, which is an indication of how to act in their presence, and may mix any or all of these attributes irrationally but meaningfully in a single scheme. We categorize diverse things in similar manners across cultures because we share perceptual apparatus, motivational drive, and emotional state as well as structure of memory and physical form manifested in observable behavior. The imagination has its natural categories, dependent for their existence on the interaction between our embodied minds and the world of shared experience. Into these categories fall particular phenomena in a more or less predictable manner. Stories describe the interactions of the contents of the categories of the imagination, which take embodied form in the shape of dramatic characters. The characters have a predictable nature and play out their relationships in an eternally fascinating pattern fashion, time and time again, everywhere in the world. 
So now we have the observation of commonality of structure, and a plausible theory to account for the presence of that commonality. Perhaps it would be reasonable, then, to describe the nature of the universal patterns in narrative, while placing a variety of additional and stringent constraints on that description for the sake of caution, given the difficulty of verifying interpretive theories. First, let us make the description rationally acceptable and internally consistent. That is, let us find a way of making sense of myth that does not conflict with the tenets of empiricism and experimental science, and that appears applicable to stories derived from many different places and many different times. Let us further make the description simple, as a good theory should be simple, so that remembering the interpretive framework will be much easier than remembering the stories themselves. Let us make it compelling as well, from the emotional perspective. Good theories have an affective component sometimes described as beauty. This beauty appears simultaneously as efficiency, the same sort of efficiency that characterizes a well-crafted tool, and as what might be described as a window into possibility. A good theory lets you use things, things that once appeared useless, for desirable ends. In consequence, such a theory has a general sense of excitement and hope about it. A good theory about the structure of myth should let you see how a story you couldn't even understand previously might shed new and useful light on the meaning of your life. Finally, let us constrain the description by making it fit with what is known about the manner in which the brain actually operates and which was described previously. Let us ensure that the world of myth as interpreted is the same world apperceived by the mind. Operation within this set of constraints allows for generation of the following straightforward hypothesis. The partially implicit mythic stories or fantasies that guide our adaptation in general appear to describe or portray or embody three permanent constituent elements of human experience. The unknown or unexplored territory, the known or explored territory, and the process, the knower, that mediates between them. These three elements constitute the cosmos, that is, the world of experience, from the narrative or mythological perspective. No matter where an individual lives, and no matter when, he faces the same set of problems, or, perhaps, the same set of meta-problems, since the details differ endlessly. He is a cultural creature and must come to terms with the existence of that culture. He must master the domain of the known, explored territory, which is the set of interpretations and behavioral schemas he shares with his societal compatriots. He must understand his role within that culture, a role defined by the necessity of preservation, maintenance, and transmission of tradition as well as by capacity for revolution and radical update of that tradition when such update becomes necessary. He must also be able to tolerate and even benefit from the existence of the transcendental, unknown, unexplored territory, which is the aspect of experience that cannot be addressed with mere application of memorized and habitual procedures. Finally, he must adapt to the presence of himself 
must face the endlessly tragic problem of the knower, the exploratory process, the limited mortal subject, must serve as eternal mediator between the creative and destructive underworld of the unknown and the secure, oppressive, patriarchal kingdom of human culture. We cannot see the unknown because we are protected from it by everything familiar and unquestioned. We are in addition habituated to what is familiar and known by definition and are therefore often unable to apprehend its structure often even unable to perceive that it is there. Finally, we remain ignorant of our own true nature because of its intrinsic complexity and because we act toward others and ourselves in a socialized manner, which is to say, a predictable manner, and thereby shield ourselves from our own mystery. The figures of myth, however, embody the world, visible and invisible, through the analysis of such figures, we can come to see just what meaning means and how it reveals itself in relationship to our actions. It is through such analysis that we can come to realize the potential breadth and depth of our own emotions and the nature of our true being, to understand our capacity for great acts of evil and great acts of good and our motivations for participating in them. Consider once again this archaic creation myth from Sumer. So far, no cosmogonic text, properly speaking, has been discovered, but some allusions permit us to reconstruct the decisive moments of creation as the Sumerians conceived it. The goddess Namu, whose name is written with the pictograph representing the primordial sea, is presented as the mother who gave birth to the sky and the earth and the ancestress who brought forth all the gods. The theme of the primordial waters, imagined as a totality at once cosmic and divine, is quite frequent in archaic cosmogonies. In this case, too, the watery mass is identified with the original mother, who, by parthenogenesis, gave birth to the first couple, the sky, Anne, and the earth, key, incarnating the male and female principles. This first couple was united to the point of merging in the Heros Gamos, mystical marriage. From their union was born Enlil, the god of the atmosphere. Another fragment informs us that the latter separated his parents. The cosmogonic theme of the separation of sky and earth is also widely disseminated. The sky and earth of the Sumerians are categories of apprehension characteristic of the Sumerian culture, and must not be confused with the sky and earth of modern empirical thinking. Anne and Ki are, instead, the dramatically represented great father and great mother of all things, including the son who gives birth to them. This somewhat paradoxical narrative is prototypical. Mythologies of creation tend to manifest themselves in this pattern. In the Enuma Elish, for example, the oldest written creation myth we possess, the Mesopotamian hero deity Marduk faces the aquatic female dragon Tiamat, mother of all things, including Marduk himself, cuts her up and creates the world from her pieces. The god Marduk serves explicitly as exemplar for the Mesopotamian emperor, 
whose job is to ensure that the cosmos exists and remains stable as a consequence of his proper moral behavior, defined by his imitation of Marduk. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, it is the Logos, the Word of God, that creates order from chaos, and it is in the image of the Logos that man, quote, let us make man in our image after our likeness, Genesis 1.26, is created. This idea has clear additional precedence in early and late Egyptian cosmology, as we shall see. In the Far East, similarly, the cosmos is imagined as composed of the interplay between yang and yin, chaos and order. That is to say, unknown or unexplored territory, and known or explored territory. Tao, from the Eastern perspective, is the pattern of behavior that mediates between them, analogous to Enlil, Marduk, and the Logos, constantly generating, destroying, and regenerating the universe. For the Eastern individual, life in Tao is the highest good, the way and meaning, the goal toward which all other goals must remain subordinate. Our narratives describe the world as it possesses broad but classifiable implication for motor output, as it signifies. We gather information about the nature of the world as it signifies for behavior, by watching ourselves and the others who compose our social groups act in the world. We derive conclusions about the fundamental meanings of things by observing how we respond to them. The unknown becomes classifiable in this manner because we respond to its manifestation predictably. It compels our actions and makes us feel. It frightens us into paralysis and entices us forward simultaneously. It ignites our curiosity and heightens our senses. It offers us new information and greater well-being at the potential cost of our lives. We observe our responses, which are biologically predetermined, and draw the appropriate conclusions. The unknown is intrinsically interesting in a manner that poses an endless dilemma. It promises and threatens simultaneously. It appears as the hypothetical ultimate source of all determinate information and as the ultimate unity of all currently discriminable things. It surrounds all things eternally, engenders all things, and takes all things back. It can therefore be said, paradoxically, that we know specific things about the domain of the unknown, that we understand something about it, can act toward and represent it, even though it has not yet been explored. This paradoxical ability is a non-trivial capacity. Since the unknown constitutes an ineradicable component of the environment, so to speak, we have to know what it is, what it signifies. We must understand its implication for behavior and its affective valence. Explored territory is something altogether different. Habitual and familiar actions are useful there, instead of the frightened, tentative, or exploratory behaviors that serve where nothing is certain. Habits and familiar actions exist as a general rule because they have been successful, because their implementation suffices to transform what would otherwise be unexplored territory into a safe and fruitful haven. As we have been at pains to demonstrate, the unknown does not lose its a priori motivational significance 
promise and threat because of the passive process of habituation. Adaptation is active. Habituation, except in the most trivial of senses, is the consequence of successful creative exploration, which means generation of behavioral patterns that turn the indeterminate meaning of something newly encountered into something positive at best, neutral at worst. Is fire dangerous or beneficial? It depends on how it is approached, which is to say, fire has context-dependent potential for harm and for benefit. Which of its many potentials fire actually manifests depends on what behavioral strategy is undertaken in its presence. Fire heats our homes. Now and then, when we are insufficiently cautious, it burns one of them down. What fire does, which is to say what it is from the perspective of motivational significance, depends on how we treat it. We have lost our fear of fire not because we have habituated to it, but because we have learned how to control it. We have learned to specify and limit its intrinsically ambivalent affective valence through modification of our own behavior in its presence. Fire, insofar as we can control it, has been rendered predictable, non-threatening, even familiar and comforting. All things we can control, which means can bend to our own ends, have been likewise rendered predictable, by definition. The territory of explored territory is defined, at least in general, by security. Secure territory is that place where we know how to act. Knowing how to act means being sure that our current actions will produce the results desired in the future. The affective significance of the phenomena that comprise explored territory have been mapped. This map takes the form of the story, which describes the valence of present occurrences, the form of the desired future, and the means that might serve usefully to transform the former into the latter. Any territories our stories serve to render beneficial constitute home ground. Home ground, explored territory, is that place where unfamiliar things do not exist. Many of the things we encounter, however, are other people. This means that explored territory is also that place where unfamiliar behaviors are not encountered. On familiar ground, we engage in those activities that are habitual, alongside others who are doing the same thing, who are pursuing the same goals, whose emotions can be understood, whose beliefs are the same as ours, whose actions are predictable. Much of what we know how to do is behavior matched to society, individual action matched to, adapted to, modified by, the cumulative behavior of the others who surround us. Explored necessarily means, therefore, where human activity has been rendered predictable, as well as where the course of natural events can be accurately determined. The maps that make territory familiar consequently consist in large part of representations of behavior, personal behavior, which we manifest, and the behavior of others, which we constantly encounter, and to which we have adjusted our personal actions. So, we map our own behaviors and those of others, because such behaviors constitute a large part of the world. 
We do not always understand what we do, however. Our actions cannot be said to be explicitly comprehended. Our behavioral patterns are exceedingly complex, and psychology is a young science. The scope of our behavioral wisdom exceeds the breadth of our explicit interpretation. We act, even instruct, and yet do not understand. How can we do what we cannot explain? We have already seen that we can represent what we do not understand, that we derive knowledge about the nature of the unknown, about the fact that it is eternally frightening and promising, by watching how we behave in its presence. We do something similar with regard to the social world and the behaviors that compose it. We watch how others act and imitate and learn to act in consequence. Furthermore, we learn to represent the social world, explored territory in large part, by watching the actions that take place in it, by exploring the social world itself. These representations are first patterns of actions, then stories. Once the nature of the behavioral patterns have been identified and represented in a declarative manner, a good story portrays a behavioral pattern with a large expanse of valid territory. It follows, therefore, that the greatest of all stories portrays the pattern of behavior with the widest conceivable territory. We imitate and map adaptive behaviors, behaviors that efficiently reach a desired end, so that we can transform the mysterious unknown into the desirable and predictable, so that the social and non-social aspects of our experience remain under our control. The particular behaviors we imitate and represent, organized into a coherent unit shared with others, constitute our cultures, constitute the manner in which we bring order to our existence. Our maps of adaptive behavior contain descriptions of the world in which that behavior is manifested, contains descriptions of explored and unexplored territory, as well as representations of the behaviors themselves. The stories mankind tells about the personal and historical past constitute expressions of the content of the declarative memory system, which is the system that knows what. Stories are generally told about animate objects, motivated, emotional beings, and might be regarded as descriptions of behavior, including antecedents, consequences, and contexts. Stories contain portrayals of the outputs of the procedural system, which is the system that knows how, and inferences, explicit and implicit, about the existence and nature of factors, implicit, nonverbal, non-declarative presuppositions, motivational and emotional, that guide and govern such output. The knowing what system therefore contains a complex, socio-historically constructed, but still somewhat unconscious, verbal and imaginative description of the actions of the knowing-how system. This description takes narrative form. Capacity for such representation emerges as the consequence of a complex and lengthy process of development originating in action, culminating in the production of capacity for abstract cognition. The episodic system, which generates representations of the experiential world, contains an elaborate model of the phenomenological world, 
composed in large part of encountered human behaviors generated by the other and the self, the most complex and affectively relevant phenomena in the human field of experience. This representation takes imaginative, dramatic, then narrative, mythic form as the model is constructed in fantasy, then described by the semantic system. Narrative, mythic reality is the world conceived of in imagination, comprising imagistic representation of the behavioral pattern central to morality, played out in an environment permanently characterized by the interplay of the known and the unknown. This reality is the world as place of action and not as place of objective things. As in Shakespeare, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. Before the emergence of empirical methodology, which allowed for methodical separation of subject and object in description, the world model contained abstracted inferences about the nature of existence, derived primarily from observations of human behavior. This means, in essence, that pre-experimental man observed morality in his behavior and inferred, through the process described previously, the existence of a source or rationale for that morality in the structure of the universe itself. Of course, this universe is the experiential field, affect, imagination, and all, and not the objective world constructed by the post-empirical mind. This pre-scientific model of reality primarily consisted of narrative representations of behavioral patterns and of the contexts that surrounded them, and was concerned primarily with the motivational significance of events and processes. As this model became more abstract, as the semantic system analyzed the information presented in narrative format but not understood, man generated imaginative hypotheses about the nature of the ideal human behavior in the archetypal environment. This archetypal environment was, is, composed of three domains, which easily become three characters. The unknown is unexplored territory, nature, the unconscious Dionysian force, the id, the great mother goddess, the queen, the matrix, the matriarch, the container, the object to be fertilized, the source of all things, the strange, the unconscious, the sensual, the foreigner, the place of return and rest, the maw of the earth, the belly of the beast, the dragon, the evil stepmother, the deep, the fecund, the pregnant, the valley, the cleft, the cave, hell, death and the grave, the moon, ruler of the night and the mysterious dark, uncontrollable emotion, matter and the earth. Any story that makes allusion to any of these phenomena instantly involves all of them. The grave and the cave, for example, connote the destructive aspect of the maternal, pain, grief and loss, deep water and the dark woods. The fountain in the forest, water and woods in their alternative aspect, by contrast, 
brings to mind sanctuary, peace, rebirth, and replenishment. The knower is the creative explorer, the ego, the I myself, the I that sees, the phallus, the plow, the subject, consciousness, the illuminated or enlightened one, the trickster, the fool, the hero, the coward, spirit as opposed to matter, as opposed to dogma, the son, son of the unknown and the known, son of the great mother and the great father. The central character in the story must play the role of hero or deceiver, must represent the son or alternatively the adversary, the power that eternally opposes the dominion of the light. The known is explored territory, culture, Apollinean control, superego, the conscience, the rational, the king, the patriarch, the wise old man and the tyrant, the giant, the ogre, the cyclops, order and authority and the crushing weight of tradition, dogma, the day sky, the countryman, the island, the heights, the ancestral spirits and the activity of the dead. Authority and its danger play central roles in interesting tales because human society is hierarchical and because the organized social world is omnipresent. Authority and power manifest themselves implicitly or explicitly in all human relationships. We have never lived, cannot live, without others. The fact of power relationships and authority constitutes an eternally challenging and necessary constant of the human domain of experience. The unknown is yang, cold, dark, and feminine. The known, yin, warm, bright, and masculine. The knower is the man living in Tao, on the razor's edge, on the straight and narrow path, on the proper road, in meaning, in the kingdom of heaven, on the mountaintop, crucified on the branches of the world tree, is the individual who voluntarily carves out the space between nature and culture. The interpretation of words in relationship to these prototypes, unknown, knower, known, is complicated by the fact of shifting meaning. Earth, for example, is unknown, feminine, in relationship to sky, but known, masculine, in relationship to water. Dragon is feminine, masculine, and subject simultaneously. This capacity for meanings to shift is not illogical. It is just not proper. Meaning transforms itself endlessly with shift in interpretive context, is determined in part by that context, that frame of reference, that story. The same word in two sentences, one ironical, for example, the other straightforward, can have two entirely different, even opposite meanings. Likewise, the sentence taken out of the context of the paragraph may be interpreted in some fashion entirely foreign to the intent of the author. Admission of the property of context-dependent meaning is neither illogical nor indicative of sloppy reasoning, nor primitive. It is merely recognition that context determines significance. The fact of context dependence, however, makes interpretation of a given symbol difficult, particularly when it has been removed from its culturally constructed surroundings or milieu. The unknown, 
the known and the knower share tremendous affective bivalence. The domain of nature, the great mother, contains everything creative and destructive because creation and destruction are integrally linked. The old must be destroyed to give way to the new. The mysterious source of all things, that is, the unknown, is also their final destination. Likewise, the domain of culture, the great father, is simultaneously and unceasingly tyranny and order, because security of person and property is always obtained at the cost of absolute freedom. The eternal subject, man, the knower, is equally at odds. The little god of earth is also mortal worm, courageous and craven, heroic and deceitful, possessed of great and dangerous potential, knowing good and evil. The unknown cannot be described by definition. The known is too complicated to be understood. The knower, the conscious individual human being, likewise defies his own capacity for comprehension. The interplay between these ultimately unfathomable forces nonetheless constitutes the world in which we act, to which we must adapt. We have configured our behavior accordingly. The natural categories we use to apprehend the world reflect that configuration. The Tao existed before its name, and from its name, the opposites evolved, giving rise to three divisions, and then to names abundant. These things embrace receptively, achieving inner harmony, and by their unity create the inner world of man. Lao Tzu The mythological world, which is the world as drama, story, form for action, appears to be composed of three constituent elements and a fourth that precedes, follows, and surrounds those three. These elements, in what is perhaps their most fundamental pattern of interrelationship, are portrayed in Figure 17, the constituent elements of experience. This figure might be conceptualized as three discs, stacked one on top of another, resting on an amorphous background. That background, chaos, the ultimate source and destination of all things, envelops the world and comprises everything that is now separate and identifiable, subject and object, past, present and future, conscious and unconscious, matter and spirit. The great mother and father, the world parents, unexplored and explored territory, respectively, nature and culture, can be usefully regarded as the primordial offspring of primeval chaos. The great mother, the unknown as it manifests itself in experience, is the feminine deity who gives birth to and devours all. She is the unpredictable as it is encountered, and is therefore characterized simultaneously by extreme positive and extreme negative valence. The great father is order, placed against chaos, civilization erected against nature, with nature's aid. He is the benevolent force that protects individuals from catastrophic encounter with what is not yet understood, is the walls that surrounded the maturing Buddha and that encapsulated the Hebrew Eden. 
Conversely, however, the Great Father is the tyrant who forbids the emergence or even the hypothetical existence of anything new. The archetypal son is the child of order and chaos, culture and nature, and is therefore clearly their product. Paradoxically, however, as the deity who separates the earth, mother, from the sky, father, he is also the process that gives rise to his parents. This paradoxical situation arises because the existence of defined order and the unexplored territory defined in opposition to that order can come into being only in the light of consciousness, which is the faculty that knows and does not know. The archetypal son, like his parents, has a positive aspect and a negative aspect. The positive aspect continually reconstructs defined territory as a consequence of the assimilation of the unknown, as a consequence of incestuous, that is, sexual, read creative, union with the Great Mother. The negative aspect rejects or destroys anything it does not or will not understand. Figure 18, the positive constituent elements of experience personified, portrays the Vierge Ouvrante, a 15th century French sculpture, which represents the constituent elements of the world in personified and solely positive form. Personification of this sort is the rule, Categorical exclusion or inclusion in accordance with valence, all bad elements, all good elements, is almost equally common. All positive things are, after all, reasonably apprehended as similar or identical. Likewise, all negative things. It is for this reason, in part, that the terror of the unknown, the tyranny of the state, and the evil aspect of man are contaminated with one another for this reason that the devil and the stranger are easily perceived as one. The Vierge Ouvrant is a strange work from the standard Christian perspective, as it portrays Mary, the mother of God, as superordinate to God the Father and Christ the Son. That superordinate position is perfectly valid, however, from the more general mythological perspective, although not exclusively valid. Each constituent element of experience can be regarded as progenitor or as offspring with regard to any other, as the world parents give birth to the divine son, as the divine son separates the world parents, as order is a derivative of chaos, as chaos is defined by order. So, the most familiar Christian sequence of generation, which might be God to Mary to Christ, is only one of many valid configurations, and is not even the only one that characterizes Christianity. The world of experience is composed of the known, explored territory, in paradoxical juxtaposition with the unknown, unexplored territory. Archaic notions of reality presuppose that the familiar world is a sacred space surrounded by chaos, populated, variously, by demons, reptiles, spirits, and barbarians, none of whom is really distinguishable. The world of order and chaos might be regarded as the stage for man, for the twin aspects of man, more accurately, for the aspect that inquires, explores, and transforms, which voluntarily expands the domain and structure of order, culture, 
and for the aspect that opposes that inquiry, exploration, and transformation. The great story is, therefore, good versus evil, played out against the endless flux of being as it signifies. The forces of good have an eternal character, in the same way that platonic objects are represented eternally in supracelestial space. Unfortunately, so do the forces of evil. This eternality exists because all members of the species Homo sapiens are essentially equivalent, equal before God. We find ourselves vulnerable mortal creatures thrown into a universe bent on our creation and protection and our transformation and destruction. Our attitude towards this ambivalent universe can only take one of two prototypical forms, positive or negative. The precise nature of these two forms, which can only be regarded as complex personalities, and of the background against which they work, constitutes the central subject matter of myth. And, dare it be said, the proper subject matter of the humanities and fine arts. Analysis of a series of myths, the series which, I would argue, underlies Western civilization itself, should make these points painfully self-evident. We will begin with a discussion of the Enuma Elish. This Mesopotamian creation story, which was elaborated in detail and complexity over the course of numerous centuries, is the most ancient, complete, cosmogonic myth at our disposal. We turn from the Sumerians to ancient Egyptian cosmology, then from these specific examples to a more general discussion of mythological representation. The Enuma Elish a comprehensive exemplar of narrative categorization. Creation myths are generally considered primitive or superstitious attempts to perform the magic of modern science. We assume that our ancestors were trying to do the same thing we do when we construct our cosmological theories and describe the generation of the objective world. This presumption is wrong. Our ancestors were not as simple-minded as we think they were and their theories of the generation of the cosmos were not merely primitive science. Archaic theories of creation attempted to account for the existence of the world as experienced in totality, which means including meaning, and not for the isolated fact of the material world. The world as experienced in totality is made up of the material things we are familiar with and the valences we consider epiphenomenal of the objects of experience and the fact of the subject who does the experiencing. The world brought into being in archaic myths of creation is phenomenological rather than material. It includes all aspects of experience, including those things we now regard as purely subjective. The archaic mind had not yet learned how to forget what was important. Ancient stories of the generation of the world therefore focus on all of reality, rather than on those distant and abstracted aspects we regard as purely objective. Science might be considered description of the world with regard to those aspects that are consensually apprehensible, or specification of the most effective mode of reaching an end, given a defined end. Narrative, myth most fundamentally, can be more accurately regarded as description of the world as it signifies for action 
The mythic universe is a place to act, not a place to perceive. Myth, therefore, describes things in terms of their unique or shared affective valence, their value, their motivational significance. If we can tell or act out a story about something, we can be said to have mapped that thing, at least in part. We tell stories about the unknown and the knower and the known, and can therefore be said, somewhat paradoxically, to have adapted to the unpredictable, to the fact that we can adapt to the unpredictable and to explored territory itself where everything has been rendered secure. Although the unknown is truly unknown, it can be regarded as possessed of stable characteristics in a broad sense. These characteristics are revealed in the actions we undertake in response to the appearance of unexpected things. The world, as experienced, is composed of all the things we are familiar with and have classified in accordance with their relevance, and all the things we are unfamiliar with, which have a relevance all of their own, and of the process that mediates between the two, which turns the unfamiliar into the familiar and, sometimes, makes the predictable strange. The domain of the unfamiliar might be considered the ultimate source of all things, since we generate all of our determinate knowledge as a consequence of exploring what we do not understand. Equally, however, the process of exploration must be regarded as seminal, since nothing familiar can be generated from the unpredictable in the absence of exploratory action and conception. The domain of the known, created in the process of exploration, is the familiar world, firm ground, separated from the maternal sea of chaos. These three domains comprise the fundamental building blocks of the archaic world of myth. We briefly discussed an archaic Sumerian creation myth previously, describing the world as the consequence of the separation of the cosmic parents, Anne, Sky, from Ki, Earth, by Enlil, their son and god of the atmosphere. The ancient Egyptians regarded the situation similarly, as states Mercea Eliade. Like so many other traditions, the Egyptian cosmogony begins with the emergence of a mound in the primordial waters. The appearance of this first place above the aquatic immensity signifies the emergence of the earth, but also the beginning of light, life, and consciousness. At Heliopolis the place named the Hill of Sand, which formed part of the Temple of the Sun, was identified with a primordial hill. Hermopolis was famous for its lake, from which the cosmogonic lotus emerged. But other localities took advantage of the same privilege. Indeed, each city, each sanctuary, was considered to be a center of the world, the place where the creation had begun. The initial mound sometimes became the cosmic mountain up which the pharaoh climbed to meet the sun god. Other versions tell of the primordial egg, which contained the bird of light, or of the original lotus that bore the child's sun, or, finally, of the primitive serpent, first and last image of the god Atom. And, in fact, chapter 175 of the Book of the Dead prophecies that when the world returns to the state of chaos, Atom will become the new serpent. In Atom, we may recognize the supreme and hidden God, whereas Ray, the sun, is above all the manifest God. The stages of creation, cosmogony, theogony, creation of living beings, etc., 
are variously presented. According to the solar theology of Heliopolis, a city situated at the apex of the delta, the god Re, Atom, Kepri, three forms of the sun, noontime, setting, and rising, respectively, created a first divine couple, Shu, the atmosphere, and Tefnut, who became parents of the god Geb, the earth, and of the goddess Nut, the sky. The Demiurge performed the act of creation by masturbating himself or by spitting. The expressions are naively coarse, but their meaning is clear. The divinities are born from the very substance of the supreme God. Just as in the Sumerian tradition, sky and earth were united in an uninterrupted Heros Gamos until the moment when they were separated by Shu, the god of the atmosphere. In other similar traditions, Ta. From their union were born Osiris and Isis, Seth and Nephthys, who will be discussed later. Primordial myths of creation tend to portray the origin of things as the consequence of at least one of two related events. The universe was symbolically born into being, for example, as a result of the action of a primeval hermaphroditic deity. Alternatively, it arose from the interaction of somewhat more differentiated masculine and feminine spirits or principles, often the offspring of the most primordial god. Emerged, for example, from the interplay of the sky, associated most frequently with the father, and the earth, generally but not invariably granted a female character. Imagery of the latter sort remains latently embedded in the oldest, Yahwist, creation myth in the familiar Old Testament book of Genesis. The Yahwist story begins in the fourth stanza of the second chapter of Genesis and describes the masculine God breathing life, spirit, into the Adama, Mother Earth, thereby creating the original hermaphroditic man, Adam. In alternative, more actively dramatic accounts, such as that of the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myth, the creative demiurge slays a dragon or a serpent and constructs the universe out of the body parts. The two forms of story, very different on the surface, share deep grammatical structure, so to speak, utilize metaphors that are closely associated psychologically and historically to drive their fundamental message home. As Northrop Fry wrote, In the Babylonian creation hymn Enuma Elish, win above. Circa 650 B.C. in its only extant form, derived from a tradition at least 2,000 years older. The god of the freshwater sea, Apsu, was killed, and his widow Tiamat, goddess of the bitter or salt waters, threatened the gods with destruction. Marduk, the champion of the gods, killed her and split her in two, creating heaven out of one half and earth out of the other. Similarly, the creation in Genesis begins with a firmament separating the waters above from the waters below, but succeeding a world that was waste, tohu, and void, with darkness on the face of the deep, teom. The Hebrew words are said to be etymologically cognate with Tiamat, and there are many other allusions in the Old Testament to the creation as a killing of a dragon or monster. It is easy, or at least appears easy, to understand why the pre-experimental mind 
might frequently have associated the creation of everything with femininity, with the source of new life through birth, most evidently the cause and concrete origin of all living things. The role of the male in the original creation, the part played by the masculine principle, more precisely, is comparatively difficult to comprehend, just as the male role in procreation is less obvious. Nonetheless, the most widely disseminated of creation myths, and arguably the most potent and influential, essentially reverses the standard pattern of mythic origin and places particular emphasis on the masculine element. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, creation depends on the existence and action of logos, mythically masculine discriminant consciousness or exploratory spirit, associated inextricably with linguistic ability with the word, as St. John states, in what was perhaps designed to form the opening statement of the New Testament, structurally paralleled with the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. John 1, 1-4 The explicit stress placed by the Judeo-Christian tradition on the primacy of the word and its metaphorical equivalence makes it somewhat unique in the pantheon of creation myths. The early Jews were perhaps the first to clearly posit that activity in the mythically masculine domain of spirit was linked in some integral manner to the construction and establishment of experience as such. It is impossible to understand why the Judeo-Christian tradition has had such immense power or to comprehend the nature of the relationship between the psyche and the world without analyzing the network of meaning that makes up the doctrine of the word. There exists clear psychological precedent for the philosophy of the early Jews and the later Christians in the Mesopotamian and Egyptian schools of metaphysical speculation, in their rituals, images, and acts of abstract verbal representation. The Mesopotamian creation myth, which we will consider first, the Enuma Elish, portrays the emergence of the earliest world as the consequence of the sexual, generative, creative union of the primal deities Apsu and Tiamat. Apsu, masculine, served as the begetter of heaven and earth, prior to their identification as such, before they were named. Tiamat, she who gave birth to them all, was his consort. Initially, Apsu and Tiamat existed indistinguishably from one another, still mingled their waters together. When, quote, no pasture land had been formed, and not even a reed marsh was to be seen, when none of the other gods had been brought into being, when they had not yet been called by their name, and their destinies had not yet been fixed, end quote. Their Uruburuk union served as the source from which more differentiated but still fundamental structures and processes or spirits issued, quote, at that time were the gods created with them, end quote. The pre-cosmogonic egg inhabited by Tiamat and Apsu gave rise to the initial world of gods. 
This process is portrayed schematically in figure 19, the birth of the world of gods. The Mesopotamian gods, like deities everywhere, present somewhat of a mystery to the modern mind. Archaic cultures are rife with deities. We seem unable to locate them now. They do not seem part of the objective external